Welcome to the Worship Generation Radio Ministry with Pastor Joey Baran, a ministry of Worship Generation Church in Fountain Valley, California. For more information, please visit us at www.worshipgeneration.com. Now let's join Pastor Joey as we study through the Bible. Tonight we're going to be in 2 Chronicles chapter 30. If you have a Bible, you can turn there. And as we go to 2 Chronicles chapter 30, we on Tuesday night we did two chapters. We did chapter 29 and 30, and they both involve King Hezekiah, one of those four great kings, three great kings of Israel, Hezekiah, Josiah, Jehoshaphat. And as we looked at him on Tuesday, we covered chapter 29, which we're not going to cover tonight, but it does have an influence and a setup for chapter 30, so I want to review a few things. His dad was the worst. Ahaz was his dad, and he was just the worst, and just a terrible politician, a bad man, and not a spiritual leader, and he not only did he, was he, he was very opposed to the Lord, and a couple of weeks ago when we left off looking at him, it said that he shut up the doors of the house of the Lord. He literally, in his personal battle against God, he did what politicians so often do. He tried to completely eradicate and eliminate the worship of the living God in contrast to him and his rule. And so he closed the doors of the temple, and that's where we left off with Ahaz. But when Hezekiah, his son, came to power at the age of 25 and became king, he the very first week, the first few weeks he was king, the very first thing he did was go after those doors and reopen the doors of the temple. And then, after reopening the doors of the temple, he cleared all the rubbish out. He called the priests and the Levites together and said, hey, we got to get back on track here. And then when we finished chapter 29, it says that he had set things in order and he had done it rapidly. He had moved with urgency. And that's part of the background to our text tonight because in the geopolitical social realm, it was extremely dark for the people of God in the southern kingdom of Judah where he is the king at this time. So we'll put him at about 720 BC and the northern kingdom, the ten tribes in the north, Sennacherib, the Assyrian powers, the superpower of that day had come down and they were besieging Samaria in the north, the capital of the northern tribes for three years. So when Hezekiah came to power, the siege was on and then the northern kingdom fell, and many of the people in the northern kingdom, the Israelites, the, their brethren of the other tribes, were taken into captivity, displaced, and it was a very difficult time. So when Hezekiah came to power, he's got to clean up his dad's mess and set that straight. He's got to find his own traction as his own man at the age of 25 being a king, and his own family. He's got a family, right? And then his role as, a, as the king a political position, and a spiritual one, but one that was very much threatened by the times that he lived in because Assyria completely eradicated the northern kingdom. And we know, as we're going to see next week, those guys are coming to do the same thing to the southern kingdom of Judah. So as he came to power, it's like, the good news is you're the boss. The bad news is we're about to go into bankruptcy. Like, that's pretty much what the background is to him coming to power. And so that's important. And so he put all these things in order with the Lord right away, in fact, we're told they even made a covenant with the Lord. 
He initiated a covenant with the Lord, which is very unique in the Bible. Then in chapter 30, he and the leaders got the idea that, hey, we need to keep the Passover. The Passover is our identity with the Lord. The Passover reminds us that we're under the blood, that there's a substitution for our sins. There's a way of forgiveness for our sins. The Passover with the unleavened bread reminds us that we're a people set apart to the Lord. We're not like the Assyrians. We're not like the Edomites. And we're definitely not like those who worship Baal and whatnot, the false gods. So he's like, we need to do this. But they were too late for the Passover. It already happened on the calendar. But you know, when times are critical and things are urgent, you need to rethink. You just got to find a way. Solomon said, a wise man scales a city wall and finds a way. And really, when we know that things are critical, they're important, and they require our attention, particularly spiritual things, moving favorably with the Lord in our life, for the people we influence, the people around us, then we got, we got to move. We got to go. Because eternity is always right there around the corner. And Hezekiah moved with that type of urgency in his life. So we come to chapter 30. And he had sent out these messengers proclaiming a Passover feast for the second month of the year. It's like, hey, we know we're, it's like celebrating Christmas in February. It's like celebrating Easter in July, like Memorial Weekend in October. It just doesn't seem quite right the way your mind would be trained to think about it. But we, we got to make things straight right now. It just reminds us that it's always going to be the right time to do the right thing, especially going forward with the Lord. Not to put off, but God knows our heart. And so he's moving with urgency. He says, we're going to do a Passover, and we know we missed the bus. We're not going to wait a year to get right under the blood and get sanctified and set apart. We're moving on this now. Here's the decree. He sent out runners like the Pony Express all over from the farthest north of Israel near Lebanon to Bathsheba down by Egypt. And it was go, 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 move, move, move. Those runners, they look like Kenyans, you know, the, the distance runners. They're just moving, and they've got the decree, and they went from village to village to village to proclaim this Passover. And this is really important because it sets the stage for tonight as we pick it up in verse 10. So they went out and they exhorted the people, saying, many people have already gone to captivity. Your children have been taken away. They've been displaced. But God promised if we do the right things, he'll restore these things to us, and he will bring them back. But we need to turn to the Lord and trust in the Lord. And so we pick it up now in verse 10 with that background. So the runners passed from city to city through the country of Ephraim and Manasseh. That's the northern part of Israel. As far as Zebulun, up near Lebanon. But they laughed at them and mocked them. Nevertheless, some from Asher, Manasseh, Zebulun, humbled themselves and came to Jerusalem. Those are, you know, tribes of Israel from those portions of tribes. Also, the hand of God was on Judah to give them singleness of heart to obey the command of the king and the leaders at the word of the Lord. Now, many people, a very great assembly, gathered at Jerusalem to keep the Feast of Unleavened Bread in the second month. They arose and took away the altars that were in Jerusalem, the ones of idolatry, and took away all the incense altars and cast them into the brook Kidron. And then they slaughtered the Passover lambs on the 14th day of the second month. The priests and Levites were ashamed and sanctified themselves and brought the burnt offerings to the house of the Lord. They stood in their place according to their custom, according to the law of Moses, the man of God. So according to Deuteronomy, Exodus, the Old Testament, the law of God. The priests sprinkled the blood received from the hand of the Levites 
for there were many in the assembly who had not sanctified themselves. Therefore, the Levites had charge of the slaughter of Passover lambs for everyone who was not clean to sanctify them to the Lord. For a multitude of people, many from Ephraim, Manasseh, Issachar, and Zebulun, had not cleansed themselves, yet they ate the Passover contrary to what was written. That is how it's supposed to be done in the Old Testament, what was written back in Exodus. But Hezekiah prayed for them, saying, May the good Lord provide atonement for everyone who prepares his heart to seek God, the Lord God of his fathers, though he is not cleansed according to the purification of the sanctuary. And the Lord listened to Hezekiah and healed the people. So the children of Israel who were present at Jerusalem kept the feast of unleavened bread seven days with great gladness. And the Levites and the priests praised the Lord by day, singing to the Lord, accompanied by loud instruments. And Hezekiah gave encouragement to all the Levites who taught the good knowledge of the Lord. And they ate throughout the feast seven days, offering peace offerings and making confession to the Lord God of their fathers. Then the whole assembly agreed to keep the feast another seven days, and they kept it seven days with gladness. Another seven days. For Hezekiah, king of Judah, gave to the assembly a thousand bulls and seven thousand sheep, and the leaders gave to the assembly a thousand bulls and ten thousand sheep, and a great number of priests sanctified themselves. The whole assembly of Judah rejoiced also, the priests and the Levites, all the assembly that came from Israel, the sojourners who came from the land of Israel, and those who dwelt in Judah. So there was a So there was great joy in Jerusalem. For since the time of Solomon, the son of David, king of Israel, there had been nothing like this in Jerusalem. Then the priests, the Levites, arose and blessed the people. Their voice was heard, and their prayer came up to his holy dwelling place to heaven. This is one of those chapters that's just beautiful. This chapter in its entirety, everything is good. The previous chapter, everything in its entirety is good. And we point that out because as we've been going through Second Chronicles, like we said, you just have to go back to chapter 28 to see how bad Ahaz was and the things that he did. So it's really refreshing with just the historical record of the Chronicles. It's just going to give the facts. It's just the legacy. So if it was good, it's good. If it's not, it's not. We can't change history. And so the lessons are there to be applied from good examples and to learn from the bad ones. But it's a really pleasant read as it was these two chapters on Tuesday night and this second half, the back two-thirds of chapter 30. When we think about this story, this record in context, Hezekiah is bringing about a revival and a renewal of God's people, unlike any that has happened from the time they were really established as a nation. David When he became king around, say, 950, uh, no more like 980, 1000 BC, when he became king, remember he was first the king of Judah, and then the other tribes came together, and they were one nation, and then his son Solomon became king, but when he died, the tribes were split again, and they've been split ever since. It's been a couple hundred years. And all those things that God had written in the law of Moses in Deuteronomy and Exodus what's commonly referred to in our Bible as the law, the people had fallen from. Now, there had been little power surges of good things like Asa and Jehoshaphat and a few others, but now it had really been a while. And for the southern kingdom of Judah, they can see the far-reaching impact of sin and rebellion against the Lord by what happened to the tribes in the north. 
So this is, this is our background. It is really a call to repentance, renewal, revival. Now, as we think about this text for us, for the church, the body of Christ, I think we can use the word like return and be restored because that's really what this is all about. The doors were open. The rubbish was taken out. Passover was declared. It's a month late or a day late and a dollar short, but they're going for it. And the decree and the proclamation is, I've made a covenant with the Lord, Hezekiah. I'm leading you in the way. You see what the Assyrians have done and are doing, and we're next on their checklist. You've seen how, how it's gone for everybody. We, Hezekiah speaking, we live in a time of anxiety and uncertainty and fear. We come from a scary past, an uncertain present, and a terrifying future. That's literally the context of him sending out these messengers. And so when he sent those guys out, it's like, get your hustle on, get it done, and cast the broad net from Dan to Beersheba. It's for all who would come. And we know the day of the Lord will come to planet Earth. And we know the church exists to cast the broad net, the Great Commission. Ours is the Great Commission until the Lord returns. The apostle said to Jesus, what will be the this, this sign of the times and all these things? And he said, you know, this gospel must be preached to all the nations. And then they're in Acts 1, they're like, hey, now that you're risen, and are you going to set the Father's kingdom? He says, set up the Father's kingdom. And he said, it's not for you to know the time of the Father's kingdom, but you shall be my witnesses, and you have the great commission. Now go out there and get things done. And we're still in that continuation of that statement there in Acts chapter 1. We're his witnesses. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. That's who we are tonight as we gather as a church. So when I think about our lives tonight, maybe for us personally, it's, it's this text would say, hey, let's, get, let's return to the Lord. Let's put in things, because chapter 29 said he set in order things that were lacking. So if there's things that are lacking, let's set them in order. Even in the book of Titus, God said to set in order. Paul said he, he left people there uh, Titus in the island of Crete to set in order things that are lacking. At any given time, if we just, it's like our life's like a garden. If we neglect growing and taking care of nurturing the garden, those naturally become weeds. So there is that constant need to be refreshed in the Lord, renewed in the Lord, and restored in the Lord. Jesus himself said to the church of Ephesus there in Revelation chapter 2, he said, you do many good things. You have good doctrine. You, you, you defend the right things and you stand against the wrong things. But, you know, like, and you even agree to hate things that I hate. But, nonetheless, you've left your first love. So, return to those things and restore those things that are lacking. So, Jesus there in Revelation says, you've left your first love. That just place of joy in the Lord, the place of the Lord being first. Not an arduous thing, not a legal thing. Not a business thing where people take a marriage, it's a relationship, it's in love, and it's romance. And then they, you know, 30 years later, it looks like a business commitment, like a partnership. That's not what marriage is meant to be. And that's definitely not what serving the Lord is meant to be. It's never meant to be a legal relationship. It's always meant to be a loving relationship. But it's in our human nature to take the joy of the Lord and make it a legal thing. That's what people do. Make it a religious thing. Make it, I'm good, you do good to me. I'm bad, you do bad to me. And we lose that idea of just that unconditional love that he first loved us, and we love him because he did love us. While we're yet enemies of the Lord, Christ died for us to restore us to the Lord. And we lose 
that first love. So I think that's an appropriate text to merge with this idea because this was a call for the people of covenant. Hey, it's the day of the Lord. You've seen it's going down. It is going down. This is our time. This is our place. We got to go and we need to respond and we need to get serious right now with the things of the Lord. And Hezekiah was very serious about the things of the Lord. So it's a call to return and be restored. Now, many of you I know are doing great with the Lord. So maybe the context doesn't quite fit that way, but the principles are appropriate to be reviewed tonight as we think about it. When we think about being returning to the Lord and being restored in the light of this context and these runners going out, it all came back to, and the focal point really of these two chapters is the Passover. And it's the blood. If you think about it, all the animal sacrifices... So Passover is about blood, and it's about the blood on the doorpost, the original Passover, the blood went over your house, and, you know, there in Egypt on the 10th plague, when the angel of the Lord saw the blood, he passed over, the the angel of death passed over, and they were spared. And that's why we have that saying that we're under the blood. We've not been redeemed with gold and silver, but by the precious blood of a lamb that was slain, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. That's why John the Baptist the greatest of all prophets, when he saw that Jesus said, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He used that analogy. And then Peter said in 1 Peter that we've not been redeemed with gold and silver, but by the blood of the Lamb. Only the blood of Christ is sufficient to cleanse us of our sins, and only his substitutionary death is sufficient that we can be forgiven in him. He made, God made him who knew no sin to become sin for us, So he died in our place that we could become the righteousness of God, the righteousness of God. So when we receive Christ, not only do we pass from the death of the consequence of our sins, and he paid that price for us, but then his righteousness is imputed or reckoned to our account, and we're declared righteous. Now, the Passover lamb and the unleavened bread spoke of these things 1,500 years before Christ came into the world. Because that blood over the doorpost reminded every Hebrew in Egypt coming out of bondage that you got to get under the blood, and you have to be under the blood. That, that's what it spoke to him of. And the unleavened bread eaten with haste, bread without leaven, and leaven speaks of sin, is that set-apart life. So there for 1,500 years, the Passover feast reminded the Israelites, or were supposed to, that there's a substitutionary death, and under the blood they're delivered from death, and then there's a journey to be lived by faith, to be set free, and it's a, it's a sanctified life. And by the way, the word sanctified and set apart is all over chapter 29 prior to this. So to return and be restored is to come back under the blood and to understand the significance and the importance of being set apart for the Lord in our, with what he has for us in our life. And that is a New Testament application of this Old Testament story from Chronicles. A couple of points that we see, because it says they kept the feast there in uh, verse 12, 13. So they kept the feast of the unleavened bread and then the blood. They slaughtered the Passover lamb. So that's that's Jesus. That's Jesus and the church right there. Okay, that's because that all speaks toward Christ. These are shadows of things that come, but the fullness is Jesus. So now three things for the rest of tonight we're going to look at here from this that we can take to heart. In this great event, because you saw gladness, joy, Rejoicing. These are great words to have in the house of the Lord with the people of God who are getting restored to the Lord and being restored to the Lord. 
But the thing that just jumps out at me right away is where it says there in verse 10 that the, they, the, the runners were mocked. That the people, so people that are going into captivity, people that have had their sons and daughters taken from them into child trafficking, slavery under the hands of the Assyrians, they're so hardened, they're so deceived, they're so given over to depravity that when the escape was offered, a type of Christ to come keep the Passover, they ridiculed and mocked it. Of course, we know when you share your faith in Jesus with people in the world, if you go door to door or just go down the beach or go out on the pier, you've ever done anything like that, or even muster up the courage to share your testimony at work or, or, or anything like that with family, we know right away there are many people who will laugh and mock. And it can be discouraging. Governments work really hard, and the devil behind governments and behind darkness works really hard to... The devil knows that human beings are very susceptible to shame and embarrassment. So the, the devil wants to always shame us to be associated with Jesus. That's why Jesus said, if you confess me before men, I'll confess you before my father. If you deny me before men, I'll, de- I'll deny you before my father. That's why Paul said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for in it is the power of God unto salvation. But the devil wants to shame us because he's the accuser of the brethren, we're told in Revelation. So we, we, have to, we have to understand that as we're going to go to the Passover feast, as we're going to keep the unleavened bread, as we're going to go from the northern tribes and make that 80-mile journey from Zebulun down to Jerusalem to do this, that as we make that stand and take that stand, there are people all around us who are going to mock and laugh and ridicule what we're doing. But narrow is the gate that leads to life, and few enter thereby. Jesus always has been and always will be the narrow gate. There has never been nor will there ever be a moral majority until we get into glory in eternity. And that is the moral majority because everyone in the kingdom is in glory. But until then, we have to realize when it comes to being restored, revived, and renewed, and stirred up by the Lord, there are always going to be people who ridicule and mock it, which means what we need to focus on is not the haters, as they say, but to focus on what God is doing. And as we think about just being in a right place with the Lord, we can think about this as what God is doing in in you or in me, what he's doing through you and through me, and what he's doing around you and around and around us. In other words, there's always God's always working, and he wants to work in us, and he wants to work through us, and there's things that are affecting us around us that God is working in as well. And so what we need to focus on is what is God doing as opposed to what he's not doing. And particularly for Hezekiah, when you're a king and you're trying to rally the people, when you get the report of people laughing and mocking your messengers, and that, 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 that stings a little bit. That's going to hurt a little bit. Like if you try and do something great for the Lord and no one responds, you like, that kind of hurts your feelings a little bit. And you learn early on, particularly if you're in ministry, that you don't look at what, what isn't happening. You need to focus on what is happening. And that's how it is with the Lord. A lot of times when we come back to the Lord, we're really discouraged by how much we've train wrecked our life, mistakes we've made, things we can't change, people we can't call and say we're sorry because they're in eternity, calls we can't return, debts we can't make right because they're just gone. And there are many things that can discourage us. And, and that can keep us from the things of the Lord, the failures of the past and even the fears of the present. But if we're going to go forward with the Lord... We need to see this phrase, nevertheless. 
And, and that's an important phrase because it says that they laughed and mocked them, but then it says in verse 11, nevertheless. That's a, that's a key word in this text. Mine's actually circled and highlighted in two different colors. First time through, it got the yellow highlight. Second time through, it got, it got the blue added to it. Nevertheless. See, when it comes to God doing a fresh work in your life, restoring things, renewing things, and just going forward, we can't be focused on what's all not happening. You, you, because what's not happening gets our attention usually much more profoundly than what is happening. You follow me? You're much more apt to see what's not happening, what's going wrong. Why, I always seem to have, everything goes against me. The refs, why do the refs, call, why does it seem like the calls are always going against us? Like, why does it seem like the umpire's calling that strike zone against me by giving a different one for the other guys? And you, you can begin to get this complex where all you see is everything that's not happening. You've been listening to the Worship Generation Radio Ministry with Pastor Joey Baran. If you would like more information about the ministry of Worship Generation, visit us online at www.worshipgeneration.com, where you can listen to the podcast of today's entire message. You can also find us on Instagram, Facebook, and our church YouTube channel. Worship Generation is located at 10350 Ellis Avenue in Fountain Valley, California. Our service times are Saturday evenings at 6 p.m. and Tuesdays at 7 p.m. For more information about Pastor Joey personally, you can follow him on his Instagram, Facebook, or YouTube channel. Thanks for listening, and God bless.